Thank you, Dan. Thank you, church. Um, I've, I've been so blessed. You have been such a blessing to me. Uh, this gesture that you've given to me, it, it, uh, it does mean something to me. It is very special to me. Um, I, our family has been blessed in so many ways. We've grown in so many ways, uh, not just by numbers, uh, but spiritually, emotionally. Uh, we, it's, it's been the constant challenge of being a shepherd is never dull. It's always exciting. It's always forcing me, helping me to grow. Your friendships, it's great to be a church where you're not just a pastor, but your friend. And uh, let me just assure you that's a rare thing. It really is a rare thing. And so I appreciate all of you who uh, count me as their friend and I you. And, uh, you know, I, the lots have fallen to me in good places. The lions have gone out in good places. I think back in my life, uh, you know, I, I've had a suspicion for a while, and it was verified in the text this morning of why I've been so blessed. You know, I, I grew up with a mother and father who knew the Lord and taught the gospel early on. Um, I didn't grow up in an abusive home. I have grandparents, both of which were believers, both sets. Uh, one set especially counted me as their own child and loved me, prayed for me every day of my life, taught me the Word of God, demonstrated the Word of God before me, enabled me financially in so many ways. I've been in good churches. Uh, I have a beautiful wife who does so much. I mean, it's incredible. I feel guilty so many times because she does so much. Uh, what she does for me in the house, I have good kids um, and a beautiful, good church like yourself. And I consider many people around this world, they, they don't have that. I, I'm just a rare exception. And I started thinking, you know, when you have so many good things, you start asking yourself why. You, know, you, you do that when bad things happen. But ever you do that when good things happen? Why me? I've done that. Why me, Lord? Um, and I, I came to the conclusion that God knew I needed it. Uh, God knew my heart, knew my tendency, and said, this fella needs all the help he can get. Uh, and so we're going to give him all the help. Good family, good wife, good children, good churches, good grandparents. See, I mean, just overboard. And uh, I, I, that was been my suspicion. And as I studied Hebrews 8, it was verified to me. It's like, that's right. Because as I read Hebrews 8, the Bible says that you've been given a new covenant, a better covenant. And the fact of the matter simply is because we needed it. We needed a better covenant. And so when you're kind of like me, not only do you live in the days of a better covenant, but you also live in the days of better everything, it's because we need it. All right? So if you're like me and you've been blessed, thank God but no, you need it. No, you need it. And so with that thought in mind, that because of our need, let's go to chapter 8. We're going to read all this chapter, which is 13 verses, and look at this better covenant and look at two main reasons why it's a better covenant. And we will praise God for it and thank him for it. And so 
in honor of what this is, let's stand as we read this chapter 8, book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 13. It's been a couple weeks now, so it's good to get back. Now the point and what we're saying is this. So he's about to sum up here. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, and the true tent that the Lord set up, not men. So this is a summary of the previous chapters, and he's transitioning now to another subject. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So he's focusing not just on the priest, but now the gift. Now if we were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, it was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the old covenant he meditates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with the fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I would make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what has become obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You may be seated. The last verse of that chapter is the summary. So if you want to know what the point is, read verse 13. And it tells you the point. Thus, the title of our sermon, A Better Covenant. Why is this a better covenant? Now we see in the first verse, if you're... Uh, really attentive and know your Old Testament, or well, at least know Hebrews, you would see this sounds really familiar. We have the high priest who's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Once again, he's quoting his old friend, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's popped up now, I think, probably for the fourth, fourth time, as the emphasis up to this point is that Jesus is our high priest. The author adds in that little phrase, in heaven. And so verse 2, he says, well, this is our minister, this is where he's serving, he says the tent that he's serving, the tabernacle he's serving, is a spiritual one. It is a real one. And what we have known up to this point, whether it was the temple in the author's day or the tabernacle in the days of Exodus, are but shadows, copies, a pattern to point to a true, eternal, spiritual reality. And he makes his point in verse 2 saying that this is one that the Lord set up, not man. He's referencing a passage in Exodus chapter 25, verse 9, as well as verse 40, that same chapter, in which it's very clear that Moses is following the pattern God gives. There's a reason behind all these materials. If you were reading Exodus 25 and you read all this stuff about the tabernacle, there's a reason why there's gold and there's silver and there's bronze and there's purple and there's scarlet and there's blue and there's silver uh, uh, bases for the 
for the poles and and in your these brass sockets and all these details. You read it's like, well, you know, this is a little overkill, God. Just know that there's going to be a reason, and there is a reason when under all these details, there's a pattern God gives. We're going to look at that on Wednesday nights as we're studying the book of Exodus. Uh, eventually, we'll get there. And so, it's pointing to an eternal spiritual reality. And so, verse 3 is a transition. The high priest, who we've had before, he's talked about Jesus as the high priest. Now, he's offering gifts, something to offer, referring to the Day of Atonement. Now, verse 4, he said, makes mention that Jesus is a different type of priest than the Levitical priest. Uh, he, he follows a different order, the order of Melchizedek. He's already talked about. Verse 5, they serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. But this one serves real, eternal things. So the first point you need to understand, why is this a better covenant? Why is the New Testament better than the Old? The first reason simply is that the Old deals with shadows, while the New deals with reality. And I would add to it eternal realities, a spiritual reality. Now what's the difference here? Well, uh, children, I, I got this metaphor here, uh, and it just helped me understand it. Children, have you ever been in a store, or a grocery store, and you thought you were following your mom or your dad, and uh, you know it looked familiar, and then you looked up, and you saw that's not mom, that's not dad, and it's kind of like a little panic, you're scared, and you're wondering, where's where are they at? You start looking around, you don't see an up and down the aisle. You go up and down the aisles and you're just looking. But if you could see their shadow, that would just automatically bring comfort in your heart. Just seeing their shadow, but that's not enough, is it? You're going to go past the shadow so you can see them. Okay? That's kind of what we have in the Old Testament, is a shadow of God, a shadow of Jesus Christ, and all these, the ark, and the, the tabernacle, and the dietary laws, and the rock that brings out water, the manna that comes down. You, you see all these things, and they're pointing to Jesus. All right, they're shadows. And so it's important for us to understand that what we have in the New Testament is the real thing, and the old is shadows. And I would just point to you that all these shadows, every single one in the Old Testament, as as far as I can understand and and figure out, they point to Jesus Christ. In fact, let me just kind of take you through some scriptures here. They're going to be put up on the screen. And and they reveal how the Old Testament points to the reality in Jesus Christ. The first one is found in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. It says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink, on the matter of a feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. These are only the shadow of things to come, but the reality is Christ. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, as well as chapter 12, that He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And why He would constantly heal people, and He seemed like He was looking to do it on the Sabbath day, looking to see if there's folks that would be offended, and He would say, okay, let me heal you. And then, of course, they would get all... You know, messed up, and Jesus would use it as a point of contact to say, Look, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath pointed to me. I am the fulfillment. That day of rest points to the rest that you find in trusting Jesus Christ. And so, even now, I would say to you, New Testament believer, every Sunday or Saturday, when you lay down to take a nap, worship. <laughs> worship by saying, Just as I rest, Jesus is my rest. And I will trust 
in him. I told you naps can be sanctifying, all right? You thought I was just joking, <laughs> but that can be part of worship if you do it right, all right? Now, and so this is an eternal reality, and so we can see this again in John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, uh, on the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that Passover lamb, we, we've talked about this already, especially on Wednesday nights, that was used, the blood was put on the doorpost that the angel of death would not kill the firstborn, wherever he saw that blood... That son would not die, the lamb died. And so that Passover lamb that they would eat every year was to point to Jesus Christ and saying, Jesus Christ's blood was shed and put on the doorpost of my heart so that I would not face the penalty of my sin. We go on. John chapter 2, verse 19 through 21. Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. The leaders Jewish leader said to him, this temple has been under construction for 46 years. And are you going to raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. This glorious Herod's temple that the stone of which I've seen the stone. And one of the stones can go from here to the end of that, that wall over there. Just huge Herodian stones and building this temple overlaid with gold. And Jesus says, as beautiful and as huge as this temple is. As, as Titus said, he, if you've ever seen a beautiful be, uh, building, then this is it in the temple. Jesus said, this is a shadow which points to him. He is the real thing. John chapter 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so much, the Son of Man be lifted up. This is referring to the brass, brazen uh, serpent that was made in which the people leaving the promise, uh, leaving Egypt, going to the promised land was complaining and grumbling. And so God sent dangerous vipers to come in, poisonous things that with one bite they die and, and they were seeking healing. God said, make this brazen serpent. If you look upon it, have faith, God will heal you. New Testament says that's a shadow. Points to Jesus Christ. First Corinthians chapter five or seven. Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch of dough. You are in fact without yeast, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Again, this Passover feast, the yeast being cleansed, taken out from our homes, is the symbol and points to the, as a shadow to the reality of Christ taking sin out of our life. First Corinthians chapter ten and four. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from the same spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. When in the Old Testament, the people were complaining and asking and seeking water. And God says to Moses, I want you to strike this rock so that water comes out. That rock represents Christ. The second time that happens, he was to speak to the rock and water was to come out. But Moses got angry, disobeyed God, and struck it again. Why was that such a problem? Because the rock represented Christ. It was a shadow of Christ in which the first time he was to come, he would be struck, but in the second time, he should not be struck, but spoken to. These are shadows in which Christ is the fulfillment. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 through 24. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus, by the fresh and living way that he inaugurated, inaugurated for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. There was a veil that separated the holy place, where most holy place where God's presence dwelled from the rest. That veil was a symbol of Jesus Christ that when he died on the cross, that veil split in two from the top to the bottom. That veil was a shadow. Christ was the reality. Since we have a great 
priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and the assurance that faith brings because we have had our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Revelation chapter 21, verse 22. At the end, John says, Now I saw no temple in the city because the Lord God, the all-powerful, and the Lamb are its temple. All these things are done away with. What does this mean? Well, go to the end, verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In other words, what is happening because Christ has come, there is no further need for a temple. There is no further need for the holy priest to be in their special vestments. There is no further need for the dietary laws. There is no further need for the Sabbath rest. These things are rituals, shadows that were fulfilled in Christ. And so these things find their fulfillment and abolishment in Jesus Christ. Interesting. As we read in scriptures, Jesus speaks about the temple and the tabernacle. We find in Luke chapter 19, verse 43 and 44. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon upon another in you because you, listen, did not know the time of your visitation. Listen, I'll give you a little history. When this was written, the tabernacle temple apparently probably was still in existence. It was destroyed in A.D. 70. All right, Jerusalem was wiped out by Vespian. He had to come and become emperor, so he sent his son, Titus, to finish the job, who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus walked uh, 40 years previously, made this statement that we just heard, and what apparently is being said here, Jesus is saying, if you had come and realized that these things are about shadows and I am the fulfillment, if you had come and realized that I am the Messiah, if you had come and bowed down and worshipped me, then perhaps that could have been avoided. That, to me, is astounding. Because in AD 70, Jerusalem was wiped out. Many people were killed. And they were dispersed, never to come again until almost 2,000 years later. But Jews have never worshipped the same since then. If you were to go... Uh, on Falls News Radio, I remember growing up, there was a Jewish center there, a synagogue, and you would see Jews walking to the synagogue in their outfits on Sabbath day. Why do they do that? Because they have no temple. They have no animals to sacrifice, no way to atoning for their sins. Their way of worship has been radically changed. Even now, Jesus gave them warning that it would happen. Hebrews gives them warning, there is no further need for the temple anymore. Reality is found in Jesus Christ. Now, let me just think about it. Let's bring this out, all right? There are some major implications here. There's no more outward ritual. There's no more building. It is spiritual in its nature. And it radically changes worship. I've come across a a writing by uh, John Piper that brings a lot of understanding of this. When Jesus comes, he fulfills and brings an end to the physical center of the Old Testament worship. Brings an end to the official priesthood, the special offerings, the dietary laws, the the clothing, the seasonal acts of atonement. 
The entire life of worship of the Old Testament is radically refocused, not on buildings and rituals, but on Jesus Christ and his person. Radically refocused on him. So, it is spiritual, and the spiritual is pervasive, so that it exists through our entire life, not just church life. It is the expression of worship. Romans 12, 2. Present your body as a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable service of worship. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. The focus on the reality is the glory of Christ, not in shadows. There's not the focus anymore in the New Testament. There's nowhere authorized in the New Testament for worship buildings, worship dress, worship times, worship music, worship liturgy, Worship size, worship sermons of 35 minutes or 40 or depending. No worship poems, worship choirs, worship instruments, worship candles. In fact, the act of getting together as Christians, the New Testament, to sing or pray or hear the word of God is never even called worship in the New Testament. Do you think maybe this is a distortion of the meaning of the worship? By using that word almost entirely for an event which the New Testament never uses that word. So what's happening? We have been freed up to take whatever customs, rituals, or traditions we want. Understanding that the heart is found in a spiritual work. This makes it cross-cultural. Cross-cultural. The New Testament document is a mission mandate. It can be frightening to realize that the reason I have a suit and tie on is more cultural than biblical. It can be frightening to say that how we're meeting together is more cultural than biblical. It being frightened if we are slaves to tradition. But the Old Testament was a come and see The New Testament is a go and tell. We find that worship is intensified, it is deepened, and made the radical fuel and goal of all missions. So we cannot look at this as a cultural straitjacket. Here's here's what it comes down to. Whether we sing a certain way or whether we sing at all, whether we have an organ, our drums... A little mouth harps, you know? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That's cultural. It is in the spirit, in your heart. This, let me mess your mind a little bit. This isn't God's house. And that it's some kind of special building where worship happens. Now, worship happens here. But it's not a tabernacle. It's not a temple. And if we go back to that, we're going back to the Old Testament. Well, isn't this God's house? Yeah, it's God's house, but so is my house. And so is your house. God's house. The whole world is God's house. Now, we may want to take care of it because it belongs to each other. And it does belong to God. But it's not unique where worship happens here. Do you understand that? So it seems that maybe what we should do is find how do we culturally work? What do we sing? I think there is probably a place to figure out what music do you listen to? 
If that's your culture, then maybe let's take your culture and worship God with it. So when there's cultural changes, then, you know, it's upon us. If we want to be effective in our culture, to worship in that way. You see how this just kind of messes you up a little bit? (laughs) Messes me up a little bit? But it's okay. You see, this is what's the point in John chapter 4. Remember John 4? Jesus is meeting the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. They had a custom where they worshiped in Samaria. And they had a major disagreement with the Jews who said, no, you can't worship there. You've got to worship in Jerusalem. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you people say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. And I would say nor in a church building. But you could worship in a church building. Okay. You people worship what you do not know. We worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. But a time is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to be his worshipers. God is spirit and the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one called Christ. Whenever he comes, he will tell us everything. And Jesus said to her, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Now, why is it that Jesus was speaking the way he did? Because the tabernacle, the temple, was a shadow. And what he's saying is the shadow is about to be done away with. Jerusalem is about to be done away with, literally, as well as spiritually. And those who will worship God must worship God in spirit and in truth. So whether I am in this building, and guess what? I could be in a a building that has been used for worship of other idols. And I can worship Jesus Christ and be a missionary. And say, this is the, and I did that. I've been in Buddhist places where there's ugly looking statues and people worshiping with these candles bit. And I say, I am going to worship God in this dark place because I can. I don't have to be in this building. I don't have to be in North Carolina or in this location. So understand that. What we do, how we look right now is cultural. It can be a form of worship. But understand it's not biblically mandated. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God because it is a spiritual work. The shadows are done away with. I mean, if you want to be trying to say, well, let's be really biblical about this. Well, I'm going to say, you know what? If that's the case, God calls us priest. Maybe we should go to the Bible and find what the priestly garments were. Guys, if you want to wear skirts and dresses and things like that, you know, all right. If you want to make a case for that. Okay. And so what I'm just saying, these things are shadows. The reality is found in Jesus Christ. Now, there's so much more here. There's <laughs> a little time. Okay, let's keep on reading here. We go to verse 6. There's a transition. He says, I've, I've talked about the shadows now. The reality is found in Christ. Verse 6. But as it is Christ has obtained a mercy that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he meditates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, what's about to be stated here is that the old covenant, the second reason why the new, te- new covenant is better, is the old exposes, all right? The old exposes who God is, exposes who we are, and then we see the vast difference. But the new enables. The new enables, all right? So he, he goes to verse 7. He says, the first covenant, uh, if the first covenant had been faultless, then there wouldn't be a second. In other words, there's some problems with the first covenant. And the problem wasn't necessarily with the law, but with them. You notice verse 8, for he finds fault with them. 
When he says, behold, the days are coming. And right now he's about to quote Psalm chapter, I mean, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31 through 34, which just trivia. This is the oldest or the longest Old Testament quotation in the New Testament right here. So he's quoting Jeremiah 31, verse 31 through 34. Now, one thing I'd like to note in verse 8 in this, you notice this covenant is to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, just a little history here. When Jeremiah was writing this, it was close to 586 B.C. when Babylon's about to come in and wipe out Jerusalem. Long before this, Israel and Judah had been separated in two different kingdoms. In fact, Israel has already been assimilated by Assyria. So what's he writing here? There will be a day and time when Israel and Judah will be reconciled and they'll be one again. But you know what? We'll find it's not just these two nations. But as we've come and learned in the New Testament, it is all the nations. Not just Israel and Judah, but all the nations will be reconciled together. Which is why I can worship with a Kenyan brother, with a Mexican sister. That's why we can worship with a Belarusian, with a Chinese. Because God, in his work, is reconciling all people to himself. And so consequently, we are reconciled to one another. Verse 9. He says, this is a covenant different from the Old Testament covenant they gave in Exodus 19. Because they didn't continue. The problem was with them. The problem, they exposed it, but their heart was not with God. So verse 10, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to do something different. He, in verse 10, 11, and 12, he gives some beautiful promises. In fact, three powerful promises. But they're all based in verse 12. You notice that word for? These promises I'm about to give you. The promise of putting the law into their minds and on their hearts. To be their God, they shall be my people. And the promise of that they will know him and not have any need for teachers is based in verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. The promises of the new covenant is foundational are found in the foundation of Jesus on the cross where God gives us mercy, where God gives us forgiveness. It's kind of like Christmas morning. Um, You know, we've got the presents under the tree. It's all there. It just remains, it just is waiting to be opened. But there's two conditions that need to be met. The children need to be awake, and the parents need to be awake. Alright? There's no going down to the tree, right? There's no going down to the tree unless both parties are awake. What the new covenant is, is there's these promises of God saying, I'm going to change your heart, I'm going to make you a new creation. You're going to belong to me, and I will belong to you, and you will know me. You will have no need for a teacher. These are beautiful promises, but you've got to wake up. God's got to wake up to you, and you've got to wake up to God. And that can only be done through mercy and forgiveness. God can turn his head towards you only because your sins have been forgiven. And that's why Jesus does on the cross. And so he says... You know, the Old Testament exposed you to what was right, and they try to do it by discipline, by will, by rituals and external circumstances of, of saying, I'm, I'm going to behave this way. Jesus comes and in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, exposes them, saying, you've just done this externally, but your heart has been far from me. And he showed them how in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, this isn't working. And so I'm going to change. I'm going to change how I'm doing things. I'm going to change your heart. I put my law into your minds. I put it in your hearts. Your desires will change. Your want to has been broken, and now I'm going to fix your want to through the gospel, through the cross, through the Holy Spirit coming into your life. And friends, I have great comfort in that. 
And he says, not only will you, I change your wants or your desires, then I'm going to claim you. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will mark you and you will belong to me. You're going to belong to somebody. You're going to belong to something. Either way you go. But will that someone and something lead you in a way that will satisfy your heart? There is no other option except in Jesus Christ. And then verse 11, and I will teach you. And this is something that God is continuing to work in our life. There will be a day and time when we will say, and you will say to me, and I will say to you, you don't need to teach me. God has taught me. I know God. Jesus alluded to this, that there will be a day and time when, when folks will not have to teach you because the spirit of truth will be in your heart, leading you and guiding you and teaching you. And this is something we can look forward to. God is at work in this right now. That will be fulfilled. Here's the beauty of this. Um, I can relate this to music. Uh, my wife is a musician. I am not. And it, it's not just because she's gone through piano lessons and she's gone through viola lessons and she can play the guitar and she can learn on her own the hammer dulcimer. It's not just because of that. That is good evidence. Um, I, I was in music chorale from high school. If it wasn't for the sheer fact that I had to do it day after day for three years, I would not be able to sing a bit. All right, it was drilled into me. If you, if you ever have to you know, clap, here's me. Okay, they look like they're clapping right. I'm just following them. We got this wee kung fu thing, and it's all about rhythm. It... My, my family just die laughing at me. All right? The only way I can do it in rhythm with what I'm seeing on TV is just pure observation. Just watching them. When I had to sing music, I had to look at the time signature. I had to look at the notes and count them out and just say, okay, that's a whole note. In this time sector, that's four beats. I'm going to rest four seconds. Bam. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel it. My wife gets on this little thing in the game first time. She's not thinking through all these things. Watching them, she just feels it. And she gets it right. I'm like, I, I, I brought the drums, a little djembe drum set in, in my office that was, it belongs to youth, by the way. It's, you know, if anyone's got the music in them, well, you know, use it. I don't, but I, I try to, you know, beat on it. It sounds terrible. It sounds terrible. I am horrible at rhythm. All right? If you come across someone rhythmless, this is it. So what's happening here? When I read this and hear this, I'm thinking, praise God, you're going to put the music in my heart. You are going to let me sing to you, God. You're going to let me get your rhythm. You're going to let me get your desires. I'm not just going to watch and try to externally transform myself by willpower. God, you're going to put the rhythm in my heart so that I can dance to you, that I can sing to you, that your desires will be my desires, and that if I have a desire within me that is contrary to him, that I will be miserable in that. When you are convicted and miserable, thank God. Thank God. Because it could be a lot worse. You could be contrary to God and feel great comfort and peace in the midst of that being contrary to God. I come across someone this past week that says, you know what? 
I've not felt guilty. I've not been in church for years. But I've not felt guilty. I just thought, you have no idea how concerned I am for you. The fact that you don't sense it bothers me greatly. If you only knew, it would bother you. God has put a new desire in my heart. Why is this a new covenant better? Because God changes you. God changes. He's changing your heart. And that's why it's important to say, God, I surrender this area of my life to you. Will you write your heart upon my heart? Will you write your word upon my mind? Will you claim me? Will you be my God? Will I be your people? Will you teach me so that I will know you? That is God's heart cry from the Old Testament on. You see it time after time after time. From Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus on. There are constant refrain that God says, Then they will know that I am their God. Friends, God is still saying the same to you and shouting in your circumstances, shouting through the word of God, shouting through me, Know that he is your God. Will you know him? opportunity has been laid out for you because a new covenant is given in which God changes your heart. God is not dealing with shadows anymore. He's dealing with the realities. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold I approach thy eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. You reject Christ, you reject all. Let's pray.